0: So before we uh, get into today's passage, I do want to give you some background information on the Philippian church and kind of bring you up to speed on where we're starting today. Verse one, uh, verse chapter one, verse twenty-seven. So the church of Philippian, or uh, the Philippian church, was located in Philippi, and it was founded by Paul on the second missionary journey around forty-nine fifty A.D. Approximately 10 years later, in 60 AD, Paul finds himself in a Roman prison for preaching the gospel. Now, when the Philippians heard that their beloved founder had been placed in jail, they collected some money and other gifts to support Paul during his stay in prison. The Philippians sent one of their own, a man named Epaphroditus, to deliver their gifts. Now, the distance. between Philippi and where Paul was, was jailed was about 800 miles. If you want a mental picture of how far 800 miles is, just picture the state of Texas from east to west. That's that's about 800 miles. Now, if um, our beloved Jeff was prisoned somewhere 800 miles away, hey, I love being a deacon, and if you guys were to send me to send him a letter, I, I don't think I'd go, man. <laughs> not by, not by foot, but you know, Epaphroditus was uh, he was a special man. Anyways, uh, so eventually Epaphroditus makes his way to Paul's prison. And what results is what you have in your lap now, uh, which is Paul's letter to the Philippians. Uh, since this is considered a thank you letter uh, to the Philippians for their generosity and their encouragement, it doesn't have the same structure as Paul's other letters uh, usually have, which is like an indicative imperative type structure where he gives doctrine for the first couple of um, chapters, and then he transitions into the imperatives, therefore, now do this, right? So, the letter starts off in typical Pauline fashion, with a warm greeting, and uh, Paul's gratitude to the Philippian church for their generosity and support. Uh, He goes on to inform the Philippians of his imprisonment, and how it's actually turned out for the better, as the message of the gospel has been spread throughout the Imperial Guard, where Paul has been imprisoned. Despite being in jail, Paul is in good spirits and encourages the Philippians to rejoice throughout the letter. Paul finds himself hard-pressed between wanting to depart to be with Christ, however, knowing that to remain in the flesh is more necessary to the Philippians. Now this brings us uh, to today's passage, uh, where Paul is going to stress the importance of unity through humility. Why is humility so important to this particular church? Apparently, two of the leading women in the Philippian church were at odds with one another, causing division amongst the congregation. In chapter two, verse or I'm sorry, chapter four, verse two, Paul pleads with these two women to put their differences aside when he writes to them and says, Now I appeal to Yodia and Syntich. Please, because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. And I ask you, my true partner, to help these two women, for they worked hard with me in telling others the good news. They worked along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are written in the Book of Life. So this strife, this division that was uh, happening within the Philippian church was was not false teaching, it was nothing of that sort. It was actually two... Worn-again Christian women who were at strife with one another. We're not really told what, it, what the strife or the disagreement was, although you do get a hint in uh, chapter 2, verse 3, uh, which we'll touch on here in a little bit. Uh, but, yeah, so there's some division going on there. And so as a result of this rift, the again, the Philippian congregation is, is at odds with one another, and Paul urges them to be united. So in verse 27, we pick it up where he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come so whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So for Paul, living a life worthy of the gospel of Christ meant living in unity and harmony. There's nothing that brings more dishonor to the gospel of Christ than disunity amongst his believers. If the Philippian church was to live worthy of the gospel, they had to remain steadfast under persecution and learn to get along. Now, during this time that Paul is writing to the Philippian church, Christians were being heavily persecuted for their faith, just as they had been ten years earlier when Paul was in the process of starting up the Philippian church. Paul continually faced opposition while he was trying to get the Philippian church off the ground. And the Philippians witnessed firsthand uh, the opposition that Paul faced. This is why Paul encourages them when he writes, uh, verse 28, And not frightened in anything by your opponents, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now here that I still have. So there's two things that Paul um, wants the Corinthians to take away uh, from what he's telling them here. In verse 29 uh, where he says, for it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him but to suffer for him. Number one, faith is a gift and we need to to recognize that every aspect of our salvation is a gift from God, including the very faith that we have in Christ. Christ has ordained our salvation from before the foundation of the world. And there is a certain process that goes along with that. And at one point, if, you're, if the Bible says, you know, we've been predestined from the foundation of the world. If you've been one of those predestined and elect people at some point in your life, you're going to come to faith in Christ. And so that very faith that you have is a gift from God. It's not something that we muster up when we hear a sermon or someone uh, preaches the gospel to us and we decide, hey, that sounds like a good idea. I think I'll become a Christ follower. Again, if you have faith in Christ this morning, it's only because God gave you that gift. Now, um, second thing that Paul wants the Philippians to to know that their suffering and persecution that they're experiencing is also a gift. Now, suffering and affliction are inevitable. Uh, We all live in the world, We know, we live in a fallen world, and we know that eventually at some point in time, we're all going to suffer in some way, shape, or form. Now, for the believer, for the Christian, suffering and affliction are often God's tools that he uses to sanctify us. I don't know about you guys, but whenever I make spiritual advancements in my life, it's only, well, not I shouldn't say only, but most of the time it's when I'm going through um, something, uh, some opposition, some affliction, some suffering, whether it's health, financial, loss of a job, loss of a loved one. Those are the times that we usually advance in our spiritual walk with Christ. It's rarely when we're, um, uh, you know, when we're living at ease and don't have a worry in the world, that we grow in Christ. Now Paul continues in chapter 2, and he says, So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but but in humility count others more significant than yourselves that each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So again, Paul's going to reiterate the same imperative that he mentioned in 127, almost word for word. He encourages the Philippians to remain steadfast, enduring persecution, and putting their differences aside by being of the same mind and same love in full accord. I like what the uh, New American Standard says uh, in one purpose. Um... So what exactly does Paul mean when he tells the Philippians to be of the same mind? Does he mean mean that he wants the Philippian church to be on the same mind theologically? Hardly. But what he does want is the Philippian church to be of the same mind when it comes to the truth of the gospel. Um, Earlier, uh, Tim told us that uh, in February we're going to be having new member classes. We're going to be receiving new members into the church. Now, in our denomination, our denomination adheres to the Westminster Confession of Faith. Does that mean that we want all of these newcomers to adhere 100% to the doctrinal conclusions of the Westminster Confession of Faith? Uh, No, absolutely not. However, what we do want is um, everyone to be on the same page when it comes to the essential truths of the gospel. Now, in, as I was studying this, uh, these verses, uh, chapter, I'm sorry, verse 3 and uh, 4 uh, reminded me of, of uh, me and my past, and some of the selfish ambition and, and conceit that I used to have uh, when I first came to Christ, and I'll share this story with you, um, hopefully some of you uh, younger bucks in here will learn <laughs> from my mistakes. So, when I was a teenager, in my late teens, uh, in the 20s, um, I was very competitive, uh, extremely competitive, more than the average, <laughs> the average guy. And um, as a matter of fact, my motto was, um, anything you can do, I can do better. And no matter what you thought you were good at, I was always going to find a way to be better at it than you. That, that's just how I was. And... Uh, and so when I got saved, I brought some of those attitudes with me <laughs> um, when, you know, when I became a Christian. I remember going to my first uh, Bible study. And the man that gave the study, um, you know, he was very well versed in the Bible, and he, he knew it pretty well. And I remember thinking to myself, I want to be like that guy. As a matter of fact, I want to be better than that guy. So I started, <laughs> I started reading my Bible. Day and night, day and night, reading it, reading it, memorizing it i'd give my, i'd give my Bible to my brother and say, "Just pick a verse and i 'll tell you what book, what chapter i 'll tell you where it 's at and and sure enough, man, he' would just randomly pick verses and I'll tell him, boom, boom, boom A couple years later, uh, my God, I stumbled upon reformed theology, and so now I want to be the best theologian there is so um I started buying tons and tons of books each week. Boxes of books were coming to my to my house at one point. I remember in one city, I spent two thousand dollars in just books and I was just going through the systematic systematics everyday hours and hours and watching videos and studying and you know I was putting in the work man and um and I wanted to be the best theologian that there was and at that time, I was on social media uh so I would always. I could smell in Armenian away, man. You man you were in Armenia, you were gonna have it. You know, you didn't want this problem, right? I was when the Baptist came along, I was like, yo man, let's do this. Or dispensational, you know. I I was just out of my mind, man. I was I was that I was that guy. I was that Christian that, you know, I was gonna be better than you. And, then I, and, I, and I did verbally tell you, oh, I'm better than you. you know, wasn't, it wasn't like that, but I would, you know. <laughs> you know. Yes. So it wasn't until this one day when um, after a Bible study, I was sitting in the car with, um, with one, of my, one of my friends, and uh, what she told me that day just completely opened my eyes to the way I was, my attitude, right? So she told me, Herman people do not care how much you know until they know how much you care. And that hit me like a ton of bricks, man. That hit me like a ton of bricks. I was like, man, you're right. You're right, man. I mean, how many of you care if I can tell you the difference or explain to you the hypostatic hypostatic union of Christ? Right? Who cares? Right? But um, I'm sure you could be more appreciative if I'd be able to come alongside you and pray with you about what, whatever's going on in your life and things of that sort. So that conversation opened my eyes, and I slowly but surely just started, you know, leaving that mentality of trying to be the best at everything all the time. So, um, again, hearing the uh, selfish ambition and conceit thing kind of give us a glimpse of what Paul may be talking about with these two women in Philippians that, that was going on with um, um, we don't know for sure, but uh, anyways, Paul, how does Paul expect the Philippians to counter the evil tendencies of selfish ambition and conceit? The only way to do that is by humbly counting others more significant than themselves and looking out for others' interests as well. I understand that counting others as more significant than ourselves and putting others' Christ above our own is easier said than done. Not only are we naturally wired to be self-centered, uh, but we live in a society that encourages us to be self-absorbed and self-centered. We're taught to look out for number one pretty much from the day we're born. So much of who we are and what we do revolves around ourselves. We're constantly pursuing our own interests and we hardly, if ever, give thought to the interests of others. So imagine for me with a moment, for a moment imagine, imagine with me working a long 60-hour work week, and all you're doing is looking forward to Saturday, where you can just relax, enjoy a big breakfast, binge on some Netflix, and just lounge around the house. The Friday night before, you get a call from your friend, and they're like, hey. Um, I'm moving out of my apartment tomorrow. Would you uh, be willing to come and, and help me move? Well, what would you do? Or imagine saving up for six, seven, eight months, $500 to buy that big 70-inch TV that you want for your, for your house, and you finally get the money. You get the $500 and you're going to go spend, you're going to go buy your TV, and all of a sudden, random call comes in, and your friend says, hey, can I borrow $500 to pay my rent for this month? What would you do? What would we do? Well, even if we said yes, and we chose to help out our neighbor and our friend, even in times like that, our, the question becomes, what's our attitude or our motive for helping? We can become, we can become self-serving even in serving others, wanting and hoping to get noticed so that we receive recognition and appreciation we think we deserve. Forgotten scholar Jay Adams writes, if you seek to serve with a Johnstons eye, you will soon see things that are wrong with your neighbor. He wasn't grateful. He didn't thank me. Or he needs more help than I do. Your attitude must be to please Christ regardless of what your neighbor does or doesn't do. Bottom line, God is the one you're serving. Your attitude toward your neighbor will be more compassionate, more loving when you serve. Not to get something in return, but out of gratitude to Christ for what he has done for you. The only antidote to self-centered service is humble service. And what does genuine humble service look like? Well, Paul doesn't have to go too far to show us a perfect example of humility. In verse 5 through 11, verses 5 through 11, we see what scholars call the humiliation and exaltation of Christ. Paul writes, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, under the earth, and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So this, my friends, is the ultimate picture of what true humility humility looks like. Jesus was never reluctant to come to this earth and accomplish our our redemption. He didn't have to be swayed by God the Father into coming to this sin-polluted world to die on our behalf. He humbly chose an eternity past before the foundation of the world to come into this world and save his people. Listen to the words of, uh, of of Jesus in the Gospel of John when he says, "I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also." And they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Again, uh, Jay Adams comments, He who enjoyed Christ, who enjoyed all the privileges of heaven, exemplified by the manifestation of his deity in glory and honor, laid that aside as he emptied himself of it, not of his deity, but of its manifestation, and took upon himself the form of a man. But not only a man, he humbled himself to become a slave. But not just a slave, he further humbled himself to the point of death. But, not only death, he humbled himself to die an ignominious death of the worst sort of criminal. This is how far Christ went in order to save you. Now, I wonder if the Apostle Paul were to observe our church for a few weeks, and he got to know the people in our congregation, would he walk away impressed and say, now there is the congregation that's living worth of the gospel of Christ? Or would he walk away saying, I think this congreg- congregation lacks immunity? As most of you know, our church is in somewhat of a transitional period. Uh, for the past 10 years, we were known as Las Tierras Community Church, under the leadership of Pas- Pastor Manuel Padilla. But as of uh, six weeks ago, uh, our church has officially been renamed Uh, renamed and now we're known as New City Fellowship in addition to the name change um, our church will also be installing new officers this come or this year now whenever churches undergo any type of change whether it be pastoral changes name changes or even theological changes disagreements and grumblings and even complaints are inevitable so when the idea to change the name of the church was first brought up in one of our session meetings, we knew that, some would, that we would receive some pushback and some resistance. Hopefully the last six weeks have given some time, some of us time to contemplate the name change and let it sink in. Now usually this is the time of year when many uh, people compile a, a resolutions list. Some Christians will resolve to read their Bibles more, spend more time in prayer, attend church more often, and while these types of resolutions are good to to grow as individual Christians, allow me to make a proposition to everyone here today. Beginning this year and going forward, let's resolve that New City Fellowship will live worthy of the gospel by being a tight-knit community of believers who overcome adversity together, puts others' interests before our own and who strive side by side to be a presence of the new city in our city as seen in Revelation 5 and 7. Let's pray.